You're listening to the Forum on Workplace Inclusion podcast. I'm Ender Goachman. The Forum on Workplace Inclusion is excited to announce the opening of the call for proposals for our 32nd annual Forum on Workplace Inclusion conference. This year's theme is Facing Forward. The submission deadline is Monday, July 15th, 2019. If you're thinking about submitting a proposal, we recommend you register for our CFP informational webinar. It's Wednesday, June 26th at 11 a.m. Register at forumworkplaceinclusion.org CFP. Also, I'd like to say thank you to all of our listeners and subscribers. Your engagement with our podcast supports our growth and helps us reach new listeners. If you like what you're hearing on the Forum podcast, please consider writing a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. If you've already written a review, thank you. And please consider sharing our podcast with a friend, family member, or a colleague. Word of mouth from our audience is the best way the forum grows. So thank you very much for listening and sharing. Thanks again and enjoy the show. Hello and happy Pride, everyone. Welcome to the Forum on Workplace Inclusion podcast. I'm Ben Rue, Program Coordinator with the Forum on Workplace Inclusion. In this episode of the Forum podcast, we hear from Dr. Joel A. Brown, Chief Visionary Officer of Numis LLC, a management consulting company based in San Francisco, California, specializing in cultural intelligence and leadership. As a change agent, Joel works strategically with organizational leaders and professionals to cultivate innovative, creative, and adaptive environments where the cultural genius of everyone can be harnessed and leveraged successfully. Best known for his critical analysis, creativity, humor, and his ability to build consensus, Joel has partnered with Fortune 500 companies, nonprofit organizations, and government agencies to help them achieve sustained growth and organizational breakthroughs. He is a member of several international think tanks, including D2K, the Diversity Collegium, CETAR, and the Global Community Dialogue. He is also an expert panelist with the Global Diversity and Inclusion ben- Benchmarks and is certified in the Cultural Detective Suite of Intercultural Tools. Joel helps companies create inclusive spaces for LGBTQ people, and he has also done critical research on the cultural norms and values of gay men. Now, a little more about today's po- episode. Despite the legal advances in recent years, LGBTQ people continue to be marginalized within U.S. society. According to various social indicators, LGBTQ people are disproportionately stigmatized and discriminated against due to their cultural identity and cultural sensibilities. Even in 2019, it seems that mainstream and even intercommunal study of queer culture has been fairly one-dimensional or superficial. This begs the question, What exactly does it mean to be LGBTQ, and how can we create a deeper understanding of our experiences? In order to better illuminate the cultural experiences of LGBTQ people, this podcast will examine the the topic, what does it mean to be LGBTQ from a cultural perspective? It will focus on current research and hear opinions on who the LGBTQ community is 50 years after Stonewall. The conversation will be genuine, warm, and lively, and will give community members and allies additional insight into who the LGBT community is and what we have contributed to society. We hope everyone finds this podcast insightful and informative. Thank you very much, and enjoy the show. Hello to my friends, my family, the kindred spirits, my brothers, my sisters, my siblings, 
all across the world who are part of the LGBTQ community, as well as our allies, I just want to say I'm so thrilled to have the honor and the opportunity to be on this podcast with you, hosted by the Forum for Workplace Inclusion. My name is Dr. Joel Brown, and to give you a little bit of an introduction, I am a uh, consultant and a coach and an interculturalist uh, that works across the world on behalf of LGBTQ inclusion. I have a business, a company, a consulting firm entitled Numos, that's a Greek word, P-N-E-U-M-O-S, and we've been in business now for about 15 years. And one of the reasons that I started my firm, quite frankly, was to create the type of environments that I didn't see as an employee, the type of culture that wasn't present for me, especially when I was starting my journey as a professional, and particularly as I was starting that professional as a gay man. So I just want to thank you all for being here with me. Uh, don't think of me as Dr. Joel. Just think of me as kind of your homie, your new friend, a person who you're meeting perhaps walking down the street or while you're on your commute on a train. Because really, this conversation is not just about me. It's about all of us. And so I want to approach it as that. And although this is a podcast, I want you to think of this as a dialogue where we're having a conversation. And this is an opportunity for us just to engage each other and to think about the community, our history, our journey, the culture more critically. So what are we going to talk about today? To me, the question that I have always been curious about, and I think one that's particularly important in this day and age, especially on the 50th anniversary of Stonewall, especially with there being so much movement and so many shifts across the globe in terms of LGBTQ rights, the thing that's really interesting to me is to think about what exactly does it mean to be LGBTQ in this day and age? I remember, oh, let's see here, 24 years ago, wow, 24 years ago, on May 14th, 1995, I came out. And that date and that occasion are emblazoned in my mind. For many of us, I know that's the same reality. And so, I remember at the time, but I even remember thinking before I came out, what is this unique journey that I'm on? What does it mean to be LGBTQ? What does that actually mean in terms of who I am, how I see the world, how I navigate multicultural environments, and in particularly how people might hold and review or revere me? And it's something that I think is worth examining uh, I think it's something that we should constantly be asking ourselves, and I think it's something that where the questions and the answers will change with each succeeding generation as we continue our journey, not only individually, but also collectively. One of the things that was really interesting to me as a child, and particularly as I became a teenager and then later when I came out, were some of the early messages that I received as an LGBTQ person. So, for example, I remember my family, which was very progressive. I grew up on the north side of Milwaukee. For those of you who are Midwesterners, uh, kudos to you. For those of you who perhaps live on the coast or live overseas and have never visited Milwaukee, I assure you, we have running water. We had uh, cable TV. We are part of the, the modern landscape, if you will. Milwaukee is a very diverse city. 
and I came from a progressive African-American family. And even in that space, and even with that as my background, there were still some messages and still some uh, early impressions that I received about the community. So for example, I remember that when people, let's say my mom or my aunts or my uncles talked about LGBTQ people, there was this secrecy, there was almost this shame. I remember, for example, when I came out and you know, my mom um, had shared the news with a couple of aunts and uncles, and then when the news got back to some cousins or even to my siblings, you know, what the way it was communicated was, did you know that Joel was gay? Did you know that Joel was coming out? Did you know that Joel might be queer? I always just thought that was interesting, that it was people always just kind of lowered their voice, like they, they were afraid for the news to escape or for people to find out or that it was something that was seen as, being mysterious or whatnot. And so coming into a coming into my own as an LGBTQ person, coming into age, one of the things I thought about or one of the early messages I received was that being LGBTQ was seen as something that you shouldn't share, was seen as something that was private. It was seen as something that didn't have the same cultural significance and value as being African American, as being a United States citizen as being working class, it was something that carried with it a level of ridicule, a level of, um, I want to say, um, shame, and a level of disdain that seemed really interesting to me. And I remember also hearing the message very early on that LGBTQ culture was just not the same as others, like it didn't have the same preeminence and that somehow by LGBTQ people talking about their culture, that somehow we were trying to displace or overshadow or um, disrespect other communities who had a culture, communities that uh, had a rich history. And the more I thought about this and the longer I spent studying this and when I eventually came out and became started the journey to become who I am today, I realized that there are some fallacies there because I definitely think there is a culture and I definitely think that who we are deserves the same amount of respect and study and critical thought that other cultures do. And you may be thinking, well, why is that? Well, number one, this community is part of an emerging and rising population across the globe. We are seeing a number of communities not only in the United States or North America and also in Western Europe, but all across the globe that are being more vocal and being more visible and saying we refuse to be silenced. We know, for example, in the United States that 20% of millennials and 20% of, let's say, Gen Z are starting to identify as LGBTQ. 20%. So it's important just to recognize that this is an emerging population and we're not going anywhere. We're, we're still here. We're still going to continue to exist. And so just like we would look at other important trends across the globe, I think this is an important community for us to study because I think this community in particular has important geopolitical and geosocial considerations for the world and for society in the future. The second reason why I think this is really critical is because this community exists all across the globe. Uh, I've had the privilege of traveling to, at this point, about 31 countries, which doesn't feel like a lot. 
and certainly that's not the entirety of the globe but what I can say to you having not only traveled but also talked and visited and spent time talking with people who live all across the globe is that they share with me their experiences of having met LGBTQ people and although the issues might be a little bit different in some contexts although the ways in which we express ourselves the ways in which we might interact and socialize might be slightly different we do exist and so I think it's important for us to recognize that we are everywhere the third thing that I think is important when we think about LGBTQ issues is that we are a cultural group that operates much like a nation state and so what do I mean by that when we think about for example going someplace like to France or going someplace like Japan as an interculturalist sometimes my clients may contact me and say how would I interact do business how should I navigate a society that's radically different than my own and so part of the work that we do is to help them become acculturated and to understand what those cultures might be and to help them understand their own cultural frame and also to exercise some cultural humility. I think the same thing needs to apply when we think about the LGBTQ community. We have our own sensibilities. There are definitely, uh, there's a, uh, a unique way in which we may approach life and business and social interactions and there's a unique way in which we might see the world. And I think it's important for us to recognize that. That being said, the culture is very rich, it's distinct, it's complex. We know that although there is what I would call this umbrella culture of LGBTQ, there's also sub-communities that are by themselves rich and distinct and complex. And by no means do I intend to suggest that everybody within the community behaves a certain way or that everybody in the community has all the same values or has the same intensity when it comes to certain values but there are some things that we hold in common there are some things that we hold dear and there are some norms that I think establish us and make us distinct from our heterosexual counterparts for example or from the norm which is why the term queer first came into use back in the 70s by Michael Foucault to begin with so there those things are really key and I also think that when we think about culture it's important to recognize that gender identity and gender expression and sexual orientation are fundamental but underappreciated elements of culture and sometimes when I'm talking to my friends who are not part of the community but people who are allies or people who want to learn more about this particular topic that notion that sexual orientation and gender expression and gender identity are fundamental to culture seems novel to them frankly and primarily because they've not had to ever think about it because the ways in which they interact and engage and carry themselves have been normative for so long that they've not had to think about how those things might be different and so one of the things that's always curious to me or one of the things I always like to think about is if there was this this community if there was this country called LGBTQ land what would the culture be like? And as I said earlier, just in thinking or just in um, processing my own thoughts about being a member of the community, I I've always thought about, well, what exactly does it mean to be LGBTQ? Yes, I know that there's same-sex attraction. Yes, I know for some people there's gender fluidity. Uh, I know that we in many ways are subverting the norms of what it means to be male or female 
but I wanted to do some critical research. I wanted to think about this more critically. And I thought to myself, as I was doing my uh, dissertation and my doctoral research, this was a critical issue that I wanted to study primarily because our communities are vastly understudied. I can't tell you how much of a dearth or how little research exists with respect to our community unless we're talking about epidemiology, unless we're talking about identity formation. But in terms of just, once again, understanding the culture, not a whole lot has been done. Strangely, a lot of the studies that focus on LGBT culture focus on consumerism. So when uh, researchers or let's say uh, communities have wanted to understand purchasing power, uh, consumer trends, et cetera, et cetera, then you've seen a lot of, uh, or I shouldn't say a lot, but you've seen some studies related to the LGBTQ community. But in terms of just studying the community and the culture for itself, to understand what it's about, to give it credence, to understand the particular nuances, to understand the value, there's not a whole lot out there. And I would dare say that that fact speaks to me the alarming trend that for many of us, we think that this question has already been settled, or if we're thinking in terms of mainstream society, a lot of people frankly have not taken the time to really care about what this community stands for and what this community is about. A lot of us have been very content to rely on stereotype. We've been very content to rely on superficial notions of what this community might stand for, what it might be. And so since I'm a curious cat, and since I, like to probe a little bit more deeply. And since I have a deep and embodying love for the community, I've said to myself, I want to think a little bit more critically about what this is. I actually want to do uh, a deeper dive. And so as I started my research, one of the things that my advisor said to me is, if you're going to do this, make sure that you choose a topic that you love, because when you get down into the doldrums and you're tired of editing and rewriting for what seems like, you know, an eternity, you need to have a topic that you're passionate about and something that's really important to you. And so in doing so, uh, I decided to interview and to talk to leaders and allies in the San Francisco Bay Area about the cultural values of being LGBTQ. Now, many of you, I'm sure, are already thinking, well, of course, you're going to talk to people in the San Francisco Bay Area, which is where I'm based, but they, of course, don't represent the entire country, and they certainly don't represent the entire world. The Bay Area is its own unique ecosystem. And I would definitely agree with you, and at the same time, there are some important considerations as to why I chose to focus on leaders and allies within the LGBTQ community here in the San Francisco Bay Area. The first reason was, of course, uh, I wanted to get my dissertation done in four years, so I didn't want to be on the 10-year track, so I wanted to get this done uh, in a, a reasonable time frame. I think the other thing to really focus on is that this research is just that what I did was my first phase of the research and I certainly intend to extend this research beyond the Bay Area and to take this research in some form or fashion to other parts of the country and other parts of the world. But at least for the initial stages, uh, I wanted to focus here in my backyard 
I didn't want to just focus on San Francisco. So when we talk about the Bay Area, I was fortunate enough to talk to people in the South Bay, which would include San Jose and its surrounding communities, the East Bay, which includes Oakland and Berkeley, and also the North Bay and any point around the Bay Area. So the research question once again was, according to LGBTQ leaders and allies in the, the San Francisco Bay Area, what are the cultural values of the community? And it's important to state up front with this qualitative study that this is not something that I can generalize to the entire community, but I thought it was important because it gave to me some important insights that I think could lead to more in-depth research down the road. Some of you may be thinking, how did we determine who the leaders would be? So was this a study or was this an exercise where I just talked to people who by power, position, money, or rank, had a level of cachet or prestige or uh, a certain level of influence within the community. Not at all. The reason that this was important to frame it this way, number one, um, was to make sure that I was talking to people who I felt that had already come to terms with their identity and had spent some time really involved and engaged in the community. It's people who had really kind of gotten their fingers into the fibers of what it meant to be LGBTQ. So who did that include? The way that we define leaders for the study was anybody who had volunteered, who had been involved or led or worked with any LGBTQ organization in the entire Bay Area. Didn't matter what their title was, didn't matter what their position was, didn't matter the level of work that they did, as long as they showed some connection to and some interest in the community in a concerted and dedicated way. So for example, a number of the organizations that we, um, <clears throat> the people that we interviewed came from included things such as the Gay Men's Chorus, uh, the Softball League, the Dyke March, people who worked in philanthropic organizations or worked in, in areas related to health and wellness. We talked to people who were involved in gaming organizations, people who were involved in other social organizations. We talked to people in spiritual and ecclesiastical communities. We talked to people who were involved politically in different organizations and some who worked on topics or things such as LGBTQ adoption or same-sex marriage rights or LGBTQ asylum. So we interviewed a number of people, 30, um, for this particular study. And the people ran the gamut. So we, we had a very um, diverse sample. I would say we had 50% uh, of the people we spoke to were persons of color. Five of the people we interviewed were foreign nationals from Africa and Europe and Latin America and Asia. We also made sure that we were talking to allies because it was important for us to make sure that not only did we get people who were in the community to get that internal view of what the community was like, but we also wanted to speak to people who were closely allied with the community but also had more of an external view. So we also spoke to allies and within those uh, that ally cohort there were 
uh, several women, several men, two persons of color to get that external viewpoint. We also had a number of people who identified as same gender loving. We had some people who identified as two spirit and we had people who also identified as queer. And when we say same gender loving, for those of you who may not be familiar with that language, there are members of the African-American community, for example, who rather than using the term gay or queer, the term that they use is same gender loving. For those of us who may not be familiar with the term two-spirit, two-spirit is a First Nation or indigenous term that refers to people who are queer, but people who also have an indigenous background. And that language comes from the idea that people who were queer had two spirits. There was a masculine spirit and there was a female or feminine spirit. And both of those spirits were embodied or contained within one person that oftentimes would be the shamans or be the spiritual leaders or the spiritual advisors within different First Nation communities. That wasn't true for every community, but that was true for a number of communities, not only in the United States, but also in Canada. That was the term that was used as two-spirit. And I am also fortunate to have Native American ancestry, although I did not grow up on a reservation. I don't want to claim or appropriate that culture. But I do know from the studies and I do know from talking to you know, my grandparents that this was also a term that was used to refer to queer people uh, who were indigenous and that was the, the nomenclature of the time. So these are the people I spoke to. And the methodology basically included uh, semi-structured interviews. I spoke to 30 different people for 90 minutes each. Some of the interviews went shorter, some of them went longer, but this was a qualitative study. And I asked a number of questions related to LGBTQ culture, LGBTQ icons and iconography, personal experiences, the process and journey of coming out and also their overall socialization. And when we talk about culture, I think it's also important not to get too nerdy with you all here. I don't want to lose anybody. But I think it's important to, to understand what we mean by culture. So for the framework that I used here, I referred to or used a model that was developed by Edgar Schein. And what Edgar Schein talked about is that when we look at culture, there's three different layers of examining culture. And if you all can just visualize a glacier, this will become, I think, very obvious and, and much easier for you to understand. What we see above the waterline, what we see, what we, what Eggershine defined defined as the observable and the feelable phenomena, the things that are apparent to the naked eye, or the things that we can easily pick up on just by walking through a community or being in society, those are what we call artifacts. Those are the things that are easily discernible and those are the uh, the cultural uh, behaviors that we can observe the of the danger of course with seeing or examining just at that superficial level is that we can see things without understanding what the underlying value might be so what do I mean by that so I can be I can go through a pride parade and I can see people celebrating and I can see people um, having a festive time, and I can come to some conclusions. I could say, for example, oh, people in the LGBTQ community like to party. People in the LGBTQ community like to engage in, they like to be unbridled with their self-expression. 
And maybe that's true, but I don't think that really gets us to the deeper value of what sponsors that behavior or what that behavior really speaks to. So then beneath the artifacts, what's above the waterline are what Eggerschein called the espoused values, those conscious goals and strategies and principles that are articulated within the community. And so, for example, when I navigate the community, one of the things I hear is equity and equality. We as a community value being treated fairly and having the same rights as other members of the community. So we could say that that is an espoused value. And I'm sure many of you have also heard other things in your respective uh, places or your respective locations too as to what are some of the espoused values of the community, whether it's around authenticity, whether it's around creativity, whether it's around gender fluidity. There are things and there are uh, norms or espoused values that are put out there that express, well, what does it mean to be a member of this community? But if we go even a step further, beneath the espoused values or what we think of are the, under the basic values, which are the underlying assumptions. So when we think about justice and we think about equality, what are the underlying assumptions? Well, one of the underlying assumptions is that being who we are, being LGBTQ, is valid. And what does that mean? It means that it's okay to have to be attracted to someone of the same sex or some, it's okay to uh, subvert traditional gender norms and to turn gender on its head and to not subscribe to a gender binary. That's what we mean by looking at basic values. And so once again, before I share with you all some of the findings from the research and really laid a predicate for the future research that I'm going to do, I just want to reiterate that once again, in doing the research, I'm not trying to suggest that every person in the community subscribes to the same values that were revealed from this research. I'm not suggesting that the research that I came up with can be generalized to everybody throughout the world. We do know that cultural values get expressed differently based on personal and cultural sensibilities. So how someone in, let's say, Cameroon might express their certain values related to being LGBTQ will be different than someone in Boston, per se. And everybody has also a different level of what I would call cultural subscription or adherence to different values. So for some of us, we may very much be focused on equity and equality and inclusion, while others of us may be focused more on um, freedom. Others of us may be more focused on community and nurture. And I would just stress that the research is ongoing. And so if any of you feel so inclined, if any of you are bored and have some cash laying around and want to do something fun for the next four years, I would encourage you to uh, maybe enroll in a doctoral program or conduct your own research and add to the meager but growing body of knowledge about LGBTQ values and LGBTQ culture. So what I found in my research were was um, seven overarching themes, and I want to talk about those, and within each of those, you also will hear some uh, some other key ideas or some sub-themes that I think are also relevant to how we look at the community. Number one, the thing that stood out from my research here in the Bay Area was this idea of justice. And when I say justice, this whole idea that there's a concern for fairness and there is a need and a strong desire to address structural inequality in an active and systematic way. So it's not just a matter of 
posting something on Facebook and saying, hey, did you read this article? Or isn't this really problematic that this is happening? But to really be at the forefront of any social change and making sure that the needs and the lives of LGBTQ people are central to any efforts to bring about greater fairness and equity within society. And in my conversations with a number of the leaders within the community, you know, some of the sub-themes that came up were equity, diversity, and inclusion, and also agency. When we say agency, it means having the power to advocate for oneself, having the intention and the ability to advocate on one's behalf and to bring um, notice or to bring awareness to the different issues that are faced in our community. That was something that was really, really important. It, obviously, as we think about uh, Stormy Delavery and we think about Marsha Johnson, these are the things that they thought about when they started uh, that rebellion with Stonewall some 50 years ago. And it's nice to know that in some pockets of the community, particularly here in the Bay Area, this spirit and this idea of justice are very much alive and well. So that was the first thing that came out in my research. The second thing was this whole idea of authenticity, which I defined as the enthusiastic appreciation for who you are. So once again, I love that definition, so let me say it again. The enthusiastic appreciation for who you are. So how does authenticity manifest itself within the community? In terms of us uh, being nonconformist, in terms of gender fluidity and rejecting heteronormativity, and in terms of our appreciation for freedom, not only collective freedom, but individual freedom to be who you are, to show up in your best light, and to be the person that who you were always meant to be, regardless of what the norms or the the rules of society might be. So that would be the second value that was very much uh, salient in the research. The third thing that came out in my research was this whole idea of verve. Verve spelled V-E-R-V-E. -E. And verve is this idea of just having spirit. Uh, it's this idea of, of having flair Sometimes in the African-American community, we call this flavor, but it's the idea of having, um, being irrepressible, but also just having this wonderful enthusiasm for life. That's verb. And in talking about verb, a number of the people I interviewed talked about how verb gets expressed within the community. Obviously, in terms of pride, so what we uh, celebrate each year during this time of year, the flair that many people in our community have, that zest, that enthusiasm for life, that, um, that extra energy that we bring to the world and to everything that we do, a sense of creativity, and also this idea of self-realization, the idea that we're not here just to live life um, at a basic level or just to accept life in the way that which has been delivered to us, but to really establish ourselves or to live life in a way that feels good for us and to define those boundaries for ourselves. All of those things speak to the verve that I think is 
so much uh, a part of the community, something that I think we may not even be completely conscious of ourselves, but something that certainly shows up. Now, once again, when we think about this term and this idea of verve, it's going to get expressed differently. And it doesn't mean that verve is going to be something that everybody uh, has the same level of intensity or recognition or um, preference for, but it's something that's there. And I think it's something that it would be worthy or be, it would behoove us to study more because no matter where I've been and no matter where I've gone, I've seen it, but at this point, I don't have the, the data to support that, but to be continued. And it was certainly something that came up in my research here among the leaders I interviewed here in the Bay Area. The fourth value that surfaced during the research was this idea of resilience and grit. We are a tough people, it seems. Uh, nobody can hold us down. And I think given our history and given all the things that we have encountered through the ages, I think I, I would be hard pressed to find anybody who would disagree with that assessment that LGBTQ people have resilience and a toughness and a grit and the way we define that is the ability to not be diminished in the face of adversity. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, don't other communities have that? Of course they do. I like to think that I belong to two other communities, uh, particularly African-American community, where grit is very much a foundation of who we are. And I think it's something that is very much a hallmark of what it means to be an underrepresented or marginalized group in the United States. At the same time, the way in which that resilience gets expressed, the circumstances in which that resilience might get expressed are going to be different. So when I think about resilience and grit, I think about the trans people of color who are showing so much grit, or just trans people in general, despite the heightened attacks or the increased number of attacks, excuse me, and the, the level of danger that we're seeing over the last two years. Hopefully this is not news to everybody, anybody that uh, we're in the face of an epidemic where there have been a number of uh, trans people killed and murdered. Uh, I think in 2017 the number was 27, or 28, excuse me, and then in 2018 the number was 27, and we've already seen a number of trans people being murdered in 2019 here in the United States and also abroad. And despite that, to see people who continue to be who they are, who are unabashed and unafraid to step out into the world and, and to be who they are, that requires a certain level of resilience that is unique among the community and particularly among the trans community. So when we think about that, once again, the, the key sub-themes are things such as strength and courage that really give way or really highlight the value of resilience and grit within the community. The fifth value that or the fifth category that I would say for uh, of cultural values that I discovered in my research relates to sex positivity. And so what does that mean, sex positivity? It means having a healthy and progressive attitude towards sex and sexuality, whether that's in the form of sensuality, uh, flirtation, homoeroticism, sexuality, etc. But just looking at sexuality and saying that this is a, a positive thing, it's part of a spiritual experience, it's something that brought all of us here, and it's something that 
is beautiful and within the proper context is something that every person should be able to appreciate and um, and, and people have uh, a deep relationship to, at least, and I should say some people, because we also know that there are people who are asexual and we don't want to uh, once again suggest that everybody has a relationship or has the same level of intensity with this topic. At the same time, what I would say to you is that when we think about sex positivity and why it's important, think about what's happening in terms of Me Too. Think about what's happening and has been happening in terms of sexual harassment. I firmly believe that if society and many of our heterosexual and if many of our uh, men in society had a healthier understanding of sexuality, had a healthier understanding of attraction and romance, not to mention, of course, having a more evolved and progressive understanding of gender and gender equity and gender rights, then I think we'd have less of the uh, fewer problems and less of the the behavior that we're seeing and that we have witnessed. And I think this is a wonderful thing where LGBTQ people could actually teach people more, the world more about sexuality, not just from a, uh, a reproductive standpoint, but also helping people to understand sexuality just from a human standpoint as well, to understand that sexuality is something that for a lot of people, not for everyone once again, but for a lot of people is a very healthy part of the human experience and something that is within a proper context can be safe and can be healthy and can really help people to connect in a, a variety of different ways. I think it's also worth saying too that cultures, every culture has a relationship and is organized differently around sex. So having grown up in the Midwest, what I can tell you is sexuality there was something that wasn't discussed. It was something that everybody did, but it just wasn't something that was discussed openly. And then you go to other places. So for example, when I've gone down to Brazil and sexuality is, is held in a much different way where people are able to laugh and joke about it, people seem much more comfortable with their bodies. When I go to Western Europe, there's a different relationship with sexuality where they're not as Victorian, they're more open. People are able to talk more about sex and sensuality in a way that is more frank and uh, frankly uh, much more uh, open than they do in parts of the United States. And so sexuality is something that's central to every culture. Or I shouldn't say it's central. There's a, there's a normative value around it. And I think we, we should understand that. And I think any of us who live in, in modern day society, particularly here in the U.S., can understand how sexuality can come out in very healthy ways and also in very perverted and unhealthy ways. And I think that's one of the challenges for us as a society is to learn how to uh, in really think about sexuality in a more progressive and thoughtful way. So sex positivity was the fifth value. The sixth value that came from my research, the larger category, was perceptiveness. Uh, the community has a value for sharp insight, or at least the people I, I interviewed had a really valued uh, discernment and intuition and the deep ability to understand things around you. And in some senses, that's a survival skill because we may have grown up in environments where you can't necessarily voice and articulate the fact that you are LGBTQ. You can't speak to others about your journey or your experience. 
So as a result, since we can't really have, uh, since the cognitive, I won't even say the cognitive, but that verbal intelligence is something that we couldn't necessarily rely on, we had to rely on a different type of intelligence, which is the ability just to survey and read our environments in a very, um, ex a very discerning way and to be able to pick up on cues that might otherwise not be available to us in, or we might not be able to, um, we might not be able to fully um, explore in a, a more uh, explicit way. I know that, for example, in certain communities I've been in, I wouldn't be able to come out to someone, or at least it wasn't safe for me to come out to someone and say, are you a member of the community? Are you uh, a lesbian? Are you queer? Are you bi? It just wouldn't be something that I would be able to do. At the same time, there were certain ways in which I might be able to read the environment, to read body language, to observe things, and come to the conclusion that more likely than not, the person or people that I was engaging with, or there were certain situations where it might be okay for me to express myself more forthrightly. So there's the survival skill, but I also think there's the value of just understanding that our our experiences, our, our journeys have allowed us to accumulate knowledge that allows us to read an environment in a very, um, to read our environments and to really understand things in a, um, a different way than perhaps people are usually attuned to. And I think in the West, uh, we have become more focused on cognitive ability, but sometimes, and this is something that once again comes from uh, our indigenous friends and from other communities, I think what we're seeing now, there's become a whole cottage industry about intuition and the ability to um, trust your collective experiences, your memories, your perceptions, and to trust the information that that's giving to you, even if you don't have the ability to talk and to necessarily process it with someone else. And so that's what tuition, intuition and discernment are, is the ability to once again understand things around you in a uh, non-traditional way. And I think that that's something from my research and from the people I spoke to that is definitely valued within the community to have that level of sharp insight. So the seventh uh, core value that came up that was really important was this whole idea of interconnectedness. And as we frame or think about interconnectedness, interconnectedness is the desire to build and sustain interpersonal relationships for social and familial support. So what are we talking about when we say interconnectedness? We're talking about community. We're talking about family. And for many of us, we've not only we've not been able to rely on our family of origin, but we've had to choose our family. We've had to reconstruct our family in order to uh, have the relationships that we want. Interconnectedness means also this idea of rootedness, this idea of feeling connected to people who are on a similar journey, who have similar experiences. And many of us come from and have similar experiences as we have challenged the norm as, as to what it means to be LGBTQ and as we have come into our own understanding of what it means to be LGBTQ. And so those are the seven things that I think really stood out for me from my research. And I am, it confirmed a lot of what I've always felt it certainly, um, a lot of it wasn't a surprise 
but it was nice just to kind of have some confirmation that, yeah, what I've always felt, what I've always understood about myself as an LGBTQ person um, is consistent with what others may feel. Now, once again, there may be some of you who may feel differently or you may have different values or you may think that although these values sound nice, they're not always played out in a way uh, to the fullest extent within the community. But I would remind you that values can be aspirational. And so what do I mean by that? For example, we live in a country right now, at least I do, the United States that talks about freedom and talks about equality. And we are far from equality on a number of different issues, whether we're looking at socioeconomic indicators, education, uh, gender, race, and gender identity, gender expression, and sexual orientation or ability or religion. That does not mean that it's not, the value is still not something that's important for people within the United States and people who see themselves as quintessentially American. And so I would say to you that even if you find yourself rejecting or questioning whether some of these values are important to the community uh, in real time, if you, see these, if you don't see these values played out in real life or on a day-to-day -day basis, doesn't mean that they aren't important. I think that we're still striving and we're still working like any community to become more diverse, more inclusive, to become more just, to become more fair, to be more connected, to be stronger, to be more resilient, to be more creative, to be more authentic, to be more bold, to be more in solidarity with each other. And I think those things will continue. So with that, one of the things I think is really important is to think about how each of us can continue to process and think about these things from a critical level. And I also think it's important to not only examine who we are within the community, who we are on, on our own personal journey, but also to think about how we each can continue to foster the type of environment where people can come out, where people can be themselves, where people can engage each other, and we can continue to contribute an environment where this type of dialogue, this type of uh, study and examination can continue well into the, into the future. And so just a couple of things that I would leave you all with before I, I'm going to uh, end with what I think is a very, hopefully, a, a special uh, send-off. The first thing I think we always have to do, and I would encourage us to do, is just to be aware of the diversity within the community. Uh, it still saddens me when I hear that there are people within the community who, uh, for example, have issues with, with the lesbian community or with the trans community. Uh, I certainly uh, am familiar with what happened in London where there was a women's march and there was uh, some controversy because some of the participants were transphobic. And so I think it's important for us to remember the diversity within the community. I think it's important for us to challenge our own biases and assumptions, to deal with our own racism and sexism and um, cisgenderism and ableism and classism. I think it's important for us to appreciate intersectionality and the dynamism that's created by our multiple identities. My experience as an LGBTQ person is very much influenced by being African-American is very much influenced by being a Midwesterner. And that makes it more interesting and rich, and I think it's something for me to, something that we can share and talk about more. Uh, 
and something that I think we, we need to be aware of that sometimes the ways and the things in which are framed as quintessentially LGBTQ are being done so by a particular segment of the community that may not represent other segments of the community. I think we have to continually go beyond a superficial understanding of what our culture is to look at cultural values, to not be content with people either outside the community or even within the community to focus on things that, yes, may, um, may stand out and may be on the surface, but don't really speak to who we are and what's important to us from a cultural, an ethnographic, or anthropological standpoint. I think it's important for us to deal with our own internalized uh, homophobia, transphobia, etc., to really learn to love ourselves and to see the full beauty of who we are. And I would say to us to, to always exhibit self-care, to take care of ourselves because there's a lot that's being thrown at our community every single day. So to the extent that we can take care of ourselves and find those moments to really experience the joy of being LGBTQ. As a consultant who does a lot of work around cultural intelligence, I can tell you sometimes the focus is on, when we look at diversity, the focus is too much on how can we prevent harm as opposed to how we can experience more joy. And I will tell you that as a member of this community, there is a lot of joy in being LGBTQ. And I would actually ask you all to think about that as you, as we conclude this, this podcast. What's the joy of being LGBTQ? And as you become aware of what that is, share that with other people, not to diminish the struggle that lies ahead, particularly for those of us uh, in hostile areas or those of us in parts of the world where LGBTQ people are being persecuted. But just to remember that there's also something wonderful and beautiful and divinely inspired about being a member of this community. And with that, I want to end with a poem, part of a poem that I wrote that speaks to the inner dialogue that I had with myself as I was coming into my own self-realization of being LGBTQ and just being a unique individual. And so as you hear this, I would just ask you to place your hand on your heart and to think about that inner child, that inner person who you nurtured and have cradled and has allowed you to get to the place where you are in life. That person who at a time may have been confused, that person who at some point may have not had support, the person who may have felt alienated and lonely, that person who for many of us may still not even be healed. And the, time, the title of this poem is called Time Simultaneous, The Man Staring at the Boy Looking at the Man. And I'll share in part. I said to myself as a child, baby boy, it will be all right if no one asks you to dance, if no one puts you first in a popularity contest. Mom said it best when she said you don't have to attest to anybody's truth but your own. I said to myself, peculiar boy, if no one stands to walk by your side, abide by the singular notion that love is reigning for your benefit, don't be counterfeit. Lonely boy, if camaraderie becomes politicized, if no one asks you to poeticize or join in the pickup games to drop dimes, be kind to yourself. In truth, there is wealth. 
beautiful boy. If no one says, I want to hear your voice, if no one wants to say, I want to hear your opinion, dominion means dwelling in every atom of yourself. So if people split you, you become seeds and bleed forever into the soil. The toils of your life will make for great reading. As long as you're not plagiarizing, sacrificing yourself to star in somebody else's fiction, individuality is conviction. When asked what is the toughest brand, survey says I am second to none. I have only ridiculously begun to be me. And with that, I want to bid you adieu. My name is Dr. Joel Brown, consultant, and now you also know poet, spoken word poet, and your friend, your brother, your kindred spirit on this journey to ensure that LGBTQ people worldwide are fully liberated and emancipated and seen for who they truly are. If you want to reach out to me, I would encourage you to do so. You can find me on LinkedIn at Joel Anthony Brown. You can also find me on Twitter. My handles are Joel A. Brown 7. You can also find me under the banner of Last Homosexual. Otherwise, you can reach out to me at joel at pneumos.com. That's P-N-E-U-M-O-S.com. And I look forward to connecting with you all. I am just amazed and inspired by the work that I know is taking place along a number of different fronts. And I want to thank you all for spending time with me during this podcast. And I look forward to meeting you someplace very soon. And I know that through all the work that we're doing, we will get to the promised land where we all need to be. Thank you and have a good pride. Thank you again for listening to the Forum and Workplace Inclusion podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to get updates and the latest episodes. Also, tell us what you think by reviewing our podcast. We'd love to hear your feedback. For more information, visit us at forumworkplaceinclusion.org or search Workplace Forum on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Thank you very much and have a great day.